Welcome to Doing It On Purpose, your shortcut to reinventing yourself with a few giggles along the way for all good brown girls and beyond. I'm Dal, aka The Happyologist, your host, and after 20 years of a lot of work, I finally bossed this reinventing myself thing. As a self-proclaimed good brown girl, I've uncovered well-being secrets from my global travels and I'm saving you a few decades of work and sharing practical tips for your own reinvention and to help you find your purpose. And I'll be joined by some seriously smart good brown girls from the field of psychology, therapy, health and well-being. So if you're ready for a life upgrade, stay tuned. And don't forget to follow The Happyologist on social media for your daily dose of happy habits. I'm Dal the Happyologist and I am doing this on purpose. So hi everyone, welcome to my podcast and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Just a quick reminder why I do these podcasts. If I can reassure at least, you know, one person on their self-discovery journey after this podcast, then that's my best gift that I could wish for. So thank you for joining. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Mandish Korkabal. So Mandish was born a second generation British Indian like myself in the 70s. And I've been blessed to know Mandish since childhood. We were both born in Coventry and that makes her my sister, of course. So Mandish is a phenomenal artist and had a 30 plus year career in mainstream television, producing the likes of MTV and various daytime TV shows. Uh, one of the shows she won a BAFTA for, which was, you know, amazing. And she rubbed shoulders with the likes of Madonna and J-Lo, to name a few. She hates to admit that. Sorry, Mandish. Uh, <laughs> so through all this, she is a dedicated daughter, wife, best friend, mum of two wonderful boys and one of the most interested and creative people I know. So today we're going to talk about the really important topic of being a good brand girl in the context of culture, career and societal expectations. So welcome Mandish to my confession room. What a career. Hi, that's a hell of an intro. (laughs) I love the fact that you found your courage, you know, in spite of a really strict upbringing doing the career that you really want and lots of things actually, um, but still being a good brown girl. So I'm really keen to delve in and understand firstly, you know, what it was like being born in a kind of second generation British Indian house in the 70s uh, with both immigrant parents. So, you know, your own parents and grandparents. So I really want to start with dual heritage. You know, was it a huge balancing act? You know, certainly was for me as we grew up, you know, that sense of finding belonging and self-identity, you know, at home, at school. So, you know, this, we were dealing with so much racism was rife back then uh, and other forms of, you know, discrimination. So how did you navigate all that, you know, as you grew up? Well, according to my father, who I spoke to this morning, uh, he said I was a very moody child. (laughs) Because, because, you know, when you have strict Indian parents, you don't talk back. You don't argue. You're not... You know, all those things are seen to be disrespectful in our culture. So yeah. apparently I was very moody. But, you know, we all learnt English from television. You know, yeah, we, at home true. we spoke our mother tongue. So I found those things hard at school when I didn't know the right words for things. And, you know, people did laugh at you, but you got over it and you got through it. I mean, I remember the first time going to secondary school, no, primary school, I came home. My parents were like, what, what, what was it like? And I was like, the food's really bland. Food is so bland. What, you didn't carry Tabasco sauce around with you like I do? <laughs> no, I know you still do that, don't you? Um, <laughs> no, and, and I remember saying, you know, the food's bland, and one day they served this curry, and it had, I think now, looking back, it probably had spaghetti hoops and vegetables, and people looking at me saying, I hate curry, you know, or when they're talking about India, about it being uncivilised. 
you know, I had people saying, what's it like to wear clothes? And you're like, what is wrong with you? You know, we weren't like that. But the problem is because our parents were working so hard to give us, you know, a good start in life, a great education. They didn't explain. They didn't have time to explain to us about the history of India, you know, and what they fought for. And, you know, and I remember, you know, when we were young, I knew we didn't have a lot of money, but our house didn't have any ornaments. And I remember my father said to me, but you know what? They could send us back. Wow. And that was always in the back of his mind. You know, I, mean, I mean, he's going to be 80 and he's finally over it, but he's still, there's something about him. that If he likes something, he admires it, but he'll never buy it. Mm. It's interesting that point you say around, um, you know, uh, never feeling secure they could send us back. It's interesting because I look at my own parents and they've still got land in India because they always say, well, you never know. You never know, yeah. You never know, but I'm British, right? Yeah, but, you know, look what happened in Kenya when they kicked all the, you know, Indian people out. So, you know, they had examples too. And also, you know, there was, you know, horrible things here like paki bashing, you know, where you'd go out and beat up Indian people. I had, when I was younger, I was walking home from school and we had, when I was at secondary school, and we had protests outside the school. So that was still, you know, early 80s and it was skinheads. And I had to take, I remember I had to take the long route home and I was pushed into the canal, Coventry Canal. Wow. And I remember holding onto the wall and scraping up the side and I was too embarrassed or too mortified to tell my parents what happened. And I told them that I was pushed into a pool instead. Wow. And um, I think I was 47 when I finally got back in the water again to learn to swim. And I'd completely forgotten what had happened. I'd actually convinced myself it was a pool. And I have this strange thing, even now in my 50s, where when I'm swimming, I have to touch the side, a solid wall, before I stand up again. Wow. You know, so, you know, racism was rife. It was right. And it was in the open. And I think, you know, then it kind of went behind closed doors and people more accepting. And also, I think cultures mixed more. But now with Brexit, you know, it's rife again. And it's, you know, it is sad. It's sad. It's that whole sense of, um, I mean, I don't know if you you got this a lot, but I got a lot of um, go back to your own country. And I used to think, this is my country. This is my country because I hadn't been to I hadn't been to India until I was think I was twenty six for the first time. So you know that's such a lazy insult. Mm. It's so lazy. You know, people need to come up with something better. <laughs> it's such it's such an easy thing to say. Go back to where you came from. I just think it's a really lazy insult. And also, you know, our country, our old sort of country or our hometown, you're sending us to was your country that you pillaged, and now we're here to do the same. <laughs> I have said that to a few people. <laughs> I'm sure. You know, one of the things I was uh, interested to talk to you about, because, you know, we're similar ages as well. It's like kind of navigating. We were the first, I suppose, you know, our parents were, the Im- you know, immigrants, uh, first gen. But for us, we were the kind of guinea pigs, right? Trying to find our way in the world because they had their community so they could stick together. You know, Asian parents could stick together. You know, certainly my uncles and aunties all lived in one house. I think everybody did in the old days. You, you, you know, my greatest love growing up was when I lived away from the extended family on the other side of Coventry but my mother missed her family and we literally we you know my father still has the house my uncle lives at the bottom of the road another couple of uncles around the corner a few more at the top of the road and everyone's in a 15 minute walk which is great but you you then you don't move on as a society as a group of people Mm. you cling on to your old culture 
And I remember when my mother went back to India, she said, I can't believe how things have changed and people are more modern and they go out and they do things. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, whereas our parents held on to that old culture thinking that's what India would be like and they thought that would be the respectful thing to do. But everyone moved on. You know, I always remember sort of saying to my friends when they were going, "Um, can you come out? You're like, no. Will you ask your parents? No. There's no point, you know, it's not worth the argument. And we never went out. And I always remember my mother saying... Unless you went to a daytimer. Oh, I never went to a daytime, and that was you. <laughs> that's a whole separate podcast. But it was, yeah, that's a different one. Wow, they're still on. Daytimes are back on now, which is quite funny. But um, yeah, that's where the daytime party came from. You could say you were at school, you went to a party to be social and mingle. But, you know, our parents didn't want us to mingle. They all wanted us to have an arranged marriage. So we weren't allowed to leave the house. I remember going to university in Bristol, and I went back home for the summer and I said to my mum, oh, I'm just popping out. She was like, no, I don't think so. And I was like, you're kidding me. I'm 19. And she went, yeah, you're back home. You act. You're under our control. You act the way you used to. This isn't Bristol. And I was 19, 20, 21. I remember leaving the house for the first time without her kicking off about anything. So, you know, at university, I was doing, I could go anywhere, do everything, cook for myself, feed myself. And then come back home to Coventry. It's like, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, and that's tough, right? That was tough. That's so tough. I think that, yeah, so one of the things I find, you know, and I look back is, and how we must have struggled with this, is that our parents, like I said, had the communities, but we had to go out into the world, right, as youngsters yeah. and face all this racism and build these communities of, you know, you know, white and Indian. And it was just so conflicting because, you know, all to an extent, I always say to my parents, it was kind of all right for you because – you know, you um, you had one another, so you didn't you didn't so get exposed true. to as much. Even in the foundries, I used to work. You know, my dad was a you know postman, you know, and he still had his little community. But I guess we were the guinea pigs that had to go out and actually build this kind of British Indian lifestyle, which was tough, right? So I guess you know, how did you, especially as a youngster, kind of how did you navigate all that? How did you find your identity as an Indian and and your you know your identity as a you know, Westerner. By making lots and lots and lots of mistakes. <laughs> no, but it's true. I didn't know how to talk to people properly. I didn't know how to, excuse me, socialise. You know, it. You know, you panic, you drink, especially as a student. I remember the first, first month I was at art college, we had to call an ambulance because an Indian girl drank so much she collapsed wow. because she'd had such a strict upbringing. And she'd never tasted alcohol before. And, you know, as awful as it was for her, it was a good lesson for me of what not to do. And it is hard building relationships and trying to explain to people that, no, I haven't been to the theatre because I wasn't allowed to leave the house. You know, and people find that nuts. And they were like, but why come here when you're going to act, you know, the old traditions? And I was like, because you generally leave your house, apart from food shopping and necessities, to find somebody of the opposite sex or somebody of the same sex, you know, someone to love, someone to spend a life with, to build something with. But if that's all going to be done for you, what are you going out and about for? They didn't see the importance of socialising. They always saw that kind of stuff as finding a mate. And they were like, well, we're finding you one, so you don't have to do that. Yeah. So, you know, and, and that was really hard. I mean, one of my my... I think it's my only regret in life 
is I was offered a job at a car factory. I always wanted to design cars. And it was uh, it was just a, a, um, a year after A-levels. And my dad was fine with it. My mother was fine with it. But my uncles were very anti it because it's a factory full of men building cars. But I was going to work in the design department. And they rallied round and told my father, there is no way I was allowed to take the job. And I later found out that the other reason was um, some of the family, extended family, worked on the shop floor. And it was very much an attitude of who does she think she is? Mm. Which was nuts because, you know, we're in this country to make a better life, to do better than we could have done in India. You know, we're, I'm, I'm from the Seni, you know, Cass, and we're farm owners. So, you know, you, you work the land. And so to come here and to do well, you could, but not if you were going to embarrass your extended family. Mm. And a lot of it, I mean, I don't know what you think, but a lot of it wasn't actually about how our parents felt. It was about society. Whoever society yeah. is, I'd love to find them. And what will the community <laughs> say? Um, and I want to find them because I'm sure their kids are doing the same thing. And that was inevitably the thing. Yeah. But I think for us, the biggest struggle growing up was in finding our identity was how do we be, you know, certainly yes, good brown girls, still, you know, uh, merge into society, but also be able to show our parents that actually we're everything that aspirationally, rather than they want, everybody else wants. Um, so it's that constant juggling act, wasn't it? it that constant... It was a constant juggling act, but also because they were farmers and landowners... Their idea of a good job was an office job in a clean environment, nine till five. That did not mm. include being a creative, working in a television studio, you know, traveling for your work. It, they, they, it's interesting. I always sort of relate it to the working class of England, you know, that kind of, I always remember the old black and white films where they go, you know, who does she think she is? You know, she thinks she's better than everyone else. And there was a lot of that. People wanted you to succeed but not too much which that's the bit I found really hard you know and I remember people saying to me why aren't you married yet and I'm like you know I just don't want to get married and they were like oh but it's all right for us to be married is it you know everything was um an attack they saw it as an attack and there was this community of mothers and aunts and you know as my husband calls them the Indian aunt network you know where you were seen (laughs) saying hello to a classmate who happened to be male, somebody would jot down the time and the location and tell your parents. And by the time you got home, they knew about it before you did, you know. And we used to get in trouble for that all the time, just saying hello to somebody. The ducking and diving that we had to do. And that's the thing, because we were always aspiring, because we, we, I suppose, you know, we were, we were good kids. We were just trying to say, the thing for me is that it's that navigating of trying to be very British, trying to be very Indian and not let anybody down. Right? Yeah. We were always trying to do the right thing. And then, you know, just coming on to the doing the right thing, I think a big thing, certainly I know is for you uh, and you're super, super smart. So I don't think you had any problems with this was academia. So yeah. a lot of, you know, bragging rights for our parents came from our academia and how yeah. we were as children, right? So how we behaved. So it'd be good to get your kind of sense of 
What was school like for you kind of growing up? Because going back to your point, we were at disadvantage because we had to speak Indian at home. So, yeah. you know, it wasn't really our first language as we were going, you know, as we were growing up. And actually, we didn't get as much time from our parents as our, you know, white counterparts did in terms of homework. But there was always this high expectation, you know, of academic achievement and the only time my parents actually had time to talk about it and it's not their fault because they were busy working it was when I got my report card and inevitably I'd always get into trouble it was the first time they'd have exposure because they didn't have time to come to parents evening first time they'd exposure to my academic failings if you like so I always felt like a disappointment but you know it was tough wasn't it it was tough I mean I found it very difficult like you say you know we we spoke our mother tongue that was our first language and English I found hard anyway. I was never academic, always creative. So that was always a slight disappointment in my family's eyes. But the one, one place they did let me go to was the library. So I know ridiculous things that are never going to come in handy because I spent hours <laughs> and hours in the library. So I think my general knowledge comes from, as a child, I used to read biographies. I know all about the Profumo affair. Didn't even happen in my lifetime, you know, but I know all about <laughs> it. And yeah. um, from, sorry, from books and from television. So I learned about English manners, you know, the rules of engagement, different phrases that I would never have got from home. And as you said, you then come home and they haven't got a clue about your homework. They don't understand why you're doing biology and physics and chemistry. They don't understand the jobs out there. They just want you to have a nice office job, mm. you know. And I remember... You know, I want, you know, it was sheer stubbornness that I sort of went to art college. But even then, you know, my poor parents had to put up with snide remarks because a lot of Asian women worked in Indian clothes factories because mm. that's all they could do because they used to make clothes at home. So they worked in Indian clothes factories. And so, you know, when I went off to do a fashion design course, they were saying, oh, why didn't you just come and work in an Indian factory with us? You know, it was, and I really did feel for my parents. And I'm so proud of them because they stood their ground and said, nope, she's going to university. And I remember someone saying, um, but why is she going to Bristol? She should go here. You don't know what's going to happen to her. Anyway, nothing happened. I got my degree, you know. But it, but again, it was very much a, who does she think she is? Because I was the first in my family to go to university. And I was the, and that's how the boys and girls, you know, so that didn't go down well, sort of with a lot of extended family. I did fashion. I worked for Vivian Westwood. I worked for Red or Dead. And then I applied for a job at the Clothes Show, <laughs> an old program <laughs> at the BBC. And yeah. finally, you know, my mum and dad could tell everybody she works at the BBC. Because that is, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's worshipped in India. And it's the one word that they could all understand. And, and then the snide remarks stopped. Finally, I think it's so tough. And as I was saying before, I think a lot of um, a lot of our parents' measure of success for themselves was based on us, and that's hugely pressurizing. Pressurizing, but also they don't give themselves credit for what they did. You know, my father was nineteen, didn't speak English. Yeah, came to this country. His letter hadn't arrived because nobody could afford a phone call or a telegram in those days. No one was at the airport to pick him up. He's with another boy from the village. The boy from the village said, I think I know someone who lives nearby. They put their money together, got a taxi to South Hall somewhere, 
Luckily, this man was in, kept to them for two days, then got some money together to make a phone call. And your father went to pick my father up because your father was the only one with the car. Wow. And he went to get him from London. Like, you know, and to do all that, you know, in those days, you know, Indian people don't give themselves credit for what they've done. You're absolutely right. And You're I, absolutely right. I don't think at 19 I could go to somewhere like China, pick up the language, make a, not only enough money for myself and my family, but, you know, don't forget our parents sent money home as well to keep the land, to build the houses, you know. It, it, you're absolutely right. I think it's making... I don't think we, at the time, were able to make those allowances in our own head for what the struggle they went through. I mean, you know, our parents used to... My dad used to talk about how he used to walk, you know, 10 miles a day to walk to school in the hot sand. Yeah. And we used to have a bit of a giggle about it, but actually it was a massive struggle. And he, like yeah. you say, he came when he was really young with a pound in his pocket to yeah. only be faced with racism, you know, live in a house full of, you know, 20 odd people that he didn't know, had to cook and clean, missed his parents, he was very close to his parents. So yeah, you're right. There were a lot of struggles, um, which I guess, you know, when you're younger, you just think, well, you put me in this situation. So, yeah. you know, it, it's tough for me to deal with. And, you know, you're talking about you know, your dad working. Well, my dad, he came to England, you know, proper sex. So when I say proper sick, you know, as in, you know, he was a, a practicing sick, you know, he wore a turban uh, and he couldn't get a job. So yeah. he went into the, um, he went into the job center and I think someone said something to the effect, you know, the person at the, the job center said, have you thought about taking your hat off? Yep. Uh, and he came home and he cried and he said to mum, I think I'm going to have to, to lose the turban. I'm going to have to cut my hair. And he did. And I think he broke. And then when his parents found out back in India, obviously, they were devastated, ashamed. So we had all of these things, again, conflicting things that he had too, which I guess we didn't understand when we were younger, because certainly from my perspective, I was like, well, you've put me in this situation. I've got to deal with this. But actually, you're absolutely right. They had all their own conflicting things, which then led to the pressure that we got put yeah. under because they sacrificed so much. So therefore, I guess we always felt that indebtedness to them. I still to this day, you know, I'm hitting 50 soon and I still feel that indebtedness. I want to make them proud. I think you have. I think if you feel indebted to your parents, they've done a good job, Mm. you know, and I think that's the way you should look at it. But at the same time, you've got to make yourself happy as well. And and that's, that's where the conflict is when you're going against what your parents think is happy. And the only way to do that, to get sort of, you know, some common ground, is to talk. And that's the one thing we don't do. We don't talk yeah. to our parents because, it, you know, when you used to try, it was like, no, can we do this? No. Can we go there? No. Why? I said, no, I don't need to say why, you know. Yeah. And so they've been brought up, they brought us up the same way their parents brought them up in India. But they didn't take, but, you know, they've moved on. They're in England now. 30 onwards, I had a better relationship with both parents. Yeah. You know, we would sit there and talk and they would say, why do you want to know these things? And I was feeling, it's good to know. It's good to know. You know, I sat my father down not long after my mother died, so 10 10 years ago. And um, I said, tell me, I'm going to film this, your life story. Mm. And he said, why? And I was like, because the children need to know. They think everything's easy, you know. They need to know the sacrifice you made for them, for me, for, you know, for your sake of your family. 
And he said the same thing. The biggest heartbreak was when he had to cut his hair. Because somebody yeah. told him he would definitely be able to get a job in a bakery if he cut his hair, shaved his beard off. And his friend did it for him and he didn't get the job. And when he called his father to tell him, his father put the phone down on him. And it was the saddest thing. But, you know, they need to realise that, you know, Grandad hasn't always had a turban and a beard. He was then lucky to get a job where they didn't mind. Yeah. But, you know, he, um, you know, it, going back to the 80s, you know, when he had um, skinheads tell him to go back to his own country. He actually said, I, I can't. The Queen invited me. You know, and he still has his Commonwealth voucher, you know, given to him by the Department of wow. Employment, you know, signed off by the Queen. He's like, I can't go back. The Queen invited me. And so I just love, you know, in those stories, we have to be careful. We have to pass them on. We have to get our parents to talk. We have to get our grandparents to talk. Otherwise, we're going to lose them. And I think yeah. unless you know where, you're, where you've come from, you have no idea where you want to go. No, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the point that you made around, you know, having our parents go through such a journey, I always, you know, say to my parents that they sacrificed their life so we could have ours. And I understand that now. Um, But back in the day, I was thinking, you know, why are you making me do this? Why are you making me study so hard? Why don't you let me go out at night? Why don't you let me be like everybody else? But now I understand everything they did was to sacrifice everything for us but at the time it didn't feel like that and hence goes back to my point around there's that almost pressure right because we have to do that kind of payback but the bit that I really wanted to talk to you about uh, as well was you know being female right in our culture I mean I'm one of four girls so I brought in a predominantly kind of female environment so and, I, and as you know I was brought up as a bit of a tomboy shocker um, so I didn't have those kind of struggles, I suppose, with having a male in the house or, you know, a brother, uh, to be able to see what those kind of differences were. Yeah. I, I think you're referring to, I think you're referring to the prince. When there's a boy in the, the house, prince, he is yes, the prince. The yeah. yeah. I mean, gosh, Indian mothers are notorious for, for, you know, preferring boys. It's, you know, I've heard women say, I'm so lucky I've got three boys. You're like, really? Because when you're old, it won't be them looking after you, it'll be your daughter. But they have this, I think it goes back to dowry days. You know, if you had a boy, you know, you've got a huge dowry and a wife, so someone else to help you with the work and a load of money or a duvet or furniture, whatever was going at the time. Yeah. So, yeah, I did find that hard, but I think he found it hard because he was older than me. So the pressure was on him. And he was not academic, you know. Mm. I mean, he's he's doing really well now, works in IT. But at the time, he wasn't very academic. And I think it's it's really easy for me to say, well, I wasn't anyone's favourite anyway. Typical middle child, which <laughs> was true. <laughs> but I don't know whether you're better off if you're the favourite. Good point. You know, a lot was expected from him. I don't know. I just think with some parents, they make a rod for their own back when they treat boys so differently. I mean, it was a running joke how my mother treated me and him. I mean, even he knew he was the favourite. And, um, you know, it was little things. My mum had made some chicken curry and she went to give me some and she went to give him some. And she gave him a brand new container and she gave me a tattered old margarine box. And my brother actually said to me, guess which one you're getting? And I was like, oh, I know. (laughs) I know, you prince. You know. I love that. I love that. That's still stayed with you since. But... 
You're right. There are loads of things like that. And I think, you know, you've got a very empathetic view, actually. I think, you know, a lot of people that, that comes with, with age. This, that comes with yeah, age. Yeah, and that comes with age, right? Because when you're younger, you're just thinking, why, why, why? Why are they allowed out? Why are they allowed to speak to uh, English girls? Why are they allowed to go to their mate's house? Hmm. You know, so many privileges. I think one of the reasons my parents relented and let me go to university to do, you know, an art degree was because I sort of said, well, I'm not the favourite anyway. Does it really matter what I do? Yes, yes, yes. You know, and, yeah. and they agreed to that. You're like, you're not supposed to admit he's your favourite. You're supposed to say, no, I love you all <laughs> equally. You know, and so it, it worked to my advantage or I used it to my advantage. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you definitely earned your stripes. You were a good brand girl, I have to say. I think most, I think my parents wanted you to rub off on me. How did that go? <laughs> Took a bit of time, but we got there. Um, but no, I, I definitely think, you know, they are from, you know, from what I know, they're hugely proud of you. But I really wanted to move on now uh, to, I guess, a little bit more around career paths and lifestyle. So, you know, a lot of second generation uh, individuals, you know, face a lot of expectations from their families to, you know, follow that traditional career path. Um, you know, we all know it and I'm guilty of it. Doctor, lawyer, I mean, I did a law degree. I gave in. Pharmacist. Um, pharmacist. Dentist. You know, <laughs> all of the above. Uh, I knew from a young age because I remember I used to come into your room and you used to have, you know, magazines of Vogue and all the cool magazines. I used to be like, wow. And you'd have this like kind of mannequin where you do all your kind of fashion. And you, you, you know, from a very young age, you were always thinking outside the box in terms of what you wanted from a career, even though you weren't exposed from that with the community around you. Uh, so how did you navigate that? How did you not give in to do a law degree like I did? I just wasn't academic. I wasn't that academic. I really wasn't interested in it. I just, I fell in love with black and white films. That's where I think my love of art and, you know, sculptures and you know, any any film based in Italy was just so romantic to me, you know. And I loved black and white films. I loved the outfits. I loved musicals, you know, old musicals. And and that's where I became interested in fashion. So it's really interesting. It was them keeping me in and not allowing me out and about mm. actually made me an artistic soul. So it, it backfired. <laughs> it backfired. And it was a, it was a dream. It, you know, it's... When you're not allowed to do anything, to say anything, I, you know, I used to come home and I, I wasn't allowed to go in any of the rooms downstairs. I'd yeah. have to go straight up the stairs and change out of my skirt into trousers and a long sleeve top. You know, my hair had to be pulled back. I was never allowed to have it out. You know, no makeup. You know, I didn't even have any. God knows what I looked like the first time I put it on. <laughs> you know, it was very, you know, Marlene Dietrich, you know, it's all wrong, all wrong. And so, so it, it was it was interesting, but it was just so strict. All we had was television. You know, that's all we had. And the library. And the library had great glossy books and, you know, beautiful fashion and, you know, Gautier and Galliano. And I just loved it. It was a different world. It was a, it was a real escapism from the dreary tragedy, you know, of Coventry, basically. Yeah. But how did you push back then from your parents? Because there would have been this, you know, certainly because they were all in the same community. So it was a given, right, that we were going to go to... I think they just told know, everybody I was doing an art degree and that was it. And it was just yeah. all, mm, you know. But weirdly, nobody minded me doing an art degree. They minded me getting a job working in a car factory. Nobody minded me doing an art degree because I think they thought she won't amount to anything. So they didn't get any pressure from outside. 
you know, their main concern was why are you letting her go to Bristol? That was their main concern. That I was going to come back, you know, with a white boy, you know, something shocking. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that would be the worst case scenario in those days, right? Yeah. Which is, which is craziness. I think you're right. I think going to university, what it represented in our parents' mind was very different to what it represented. Well, to an extent, because we knew it meant freedom. Yeah. You know it meant it being able to mix with all different cultures. Um, you knew you know you knew it would open your mind. But I think in our parents the concern was again, what's society gonna say if she comes back and she's cut her hair or she's been seen with a boy and you know, the shame and it's gonna get back to what I call headquarters in India, right? So yeah, you know, and before you know it's a massive scandal. So I think it's not necessarily you know, about going to university is what it, you know, represented in their minds. It represented a freedom that your parents didn't want you to have, that the community didn't want you to have. Mm. And, you know, with freedom comes, you know, experience. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, I, I would often say to my mother, you know, if I went to nice dinners, you know, with work and saw the world, you know, when I worked for MTV Europe, you know, I went round the world interviewing people and I remember saying to my mother, I wish I could take you with me. And she goes, yes, but this is what we did. This is what we wanted to you, for you to live your best life. So I also do think with a lot of Asian parents, I mean, I don't know about all of them. With mine, I was particularly lucky because we talked to them, they changed. Mm. You know, as you know, you know, I have a white brother-in-law, <laughs> you know, and they're absolutely fine. They adore Peter. And, you know, but I remember growing up thinking, good gosh, no, I wouldn't be allowed to marry anybody of a different colour, a different religion, a different caste even. You know, so my parents changed. They're quite open-minded, I think, you know, compared to, you know, a lot of other uh, parents might have been in those days. And I think, you know, you as a family would, I know you were saying about the whole emotions piece and actually we weren't allowed to share our emotions or thoughts and feelings but I think you kind of educated your parents along the way and you took them on that journey of showing them actually you can be a good person um but there are things that I'm going to do which will still make you proud of me but actually you know those misconceptions that they might have had in their mind you were able to kind of alleviate those concerns yeah yeah completely and you know I think they realized when I came back home after university the fact that I came home you know, that I missed home, you know, that I hadn't really changed that much, but I'd lived a life in three years. <laughs> yeah. You know, it meant something to them. You know, I've never seen them happier. They never came once to Bristol to visit me. Come graduation day, they were over the moon. Never seen them happier. I mean, you must have felt that too. Had that too. And I just reminded me, actually, I was just reminiscing because this is quite embarrassing, actually. You, you, you probably would have shared this with me, but... um. I used to get doggy bags sent, you know, Indian curries. Remember when we used to get together on a Sunday and yes. just like gather around these Indian curries. So I never quite left, I never fully quite left home. It's, it's quite interesting because um, I actually then went back home just to do the rest of my degree because I actually missed family and that kind of whole cultural vibe. So whilst I was struggling against it for 18 years, which is the irony, I then actually went back home again because I missed that kind of creature comforts. But you know, there's nothing wrong with admitting you made a mistake or... That the you there's you know this isn't working for me within our culture. You're not allowed to make a mistake. You're not allowed to get things wrong. Do you know what I mean? You're not allowed to fail because they gave up so much for you to succeed. And that in itself is another re-education, telling them that this isn't failure. This is me realizing this isn't for me. So I'm going to do something else that is. Or you know, yes, I made a mistake, but I've learned from that mistake. 
So it's, again, you're re-educating your parents to think of it a different way and not how the rest of the community think about it. And just going back to your career, because I think it's so fascinating, uh, and we're brushing on that because I know that you uh, you don't really like talking about it. You're not one of those boasting, you know, people that boast about things like this. But, you know, you were one of the first Indian women actually in television. We're talking back in the 90s. Give us a bit of a sense of actually what was that like and how were people accepting? At Pebble Mill, there was quite a few. It was quite multicultural, but a lot of people worked in radio. But it's when I got to London, I realised, you know, I was like the only Indian woman at Teddington Studios, the only Indian person at Channel 5. You know, MTV, you know, I remember um, somebody quite famous talking to me and saying, I'm sure we've met before. Everybody was aghast. And I, was, and I just turned around and said, well, how many Indian people do you have working here? Yeah. And they were like, oh, we didn't think of that. You know, it, it never bothered me. It never bothered anyone else. Um, every now and then I'd get the, the occasional remark like, um, oh, gosh, I bet it's hot where you come from. And I'm like, no, no, Coventry's north. It's a lot colder. <laughs> you know, so people who hadn't dealt with anyone coloured before, especially at the BBC, you know, old school BBC, but nobody pushed my identity. I didn't push it. Nobody else pushed that. There was no sort of delving into the culture. I mean, it came in handy when I, we once had Amit the Butchan, indie mm. movie star on Channel 5. And I said, I know a Bangra band, you know. And we got this <laughs> Bangra <laughs> band on. And it turned out they were actually in a film with him when he filmed in England. So it worked out really wow. well. So it's come in yeah. handy. You, I suppose you were a part of that whole, you were in TV, that whole movement when, God, you remember in Goodness Gracious Me and Bardi on the Beach and, you know, those films came out and all of a sudden, I don't know how you felt, but I felt like a sense of pride almost that actually we were being put on the map and we were yeah. going into mainstream television and actually we could laugh about, you know, Goodness Gracious Me, it was about laughing at ourselves and, Absolutely. you know, you're right, and yeah. all <laughs> that kind of, you know, jokey stuff, but actually we could laugh at ourselves uh, yeah. and meet the Kapoor's, you know, that kind of thing. I guess you witnessed all of that kind of uh, bringing Asian, to, you know, culture into the mainstream. Yeah, and it was great because we, we would laugh and joke and say that's exactly what my mother would do. She would take Alupurante with her on a, you know, seaside trip, then go <laughs> to a cafe <laughs> and order a cup of tea. They'd be like, you can't eat your own food here. They just didn't see the big deal. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and actually, a couple of months ago, I went to Bournemouth and there was this, the most heartwarming thing I saw. Huge blankets, about 20, 30 Asian people, all family, different ages, extended. And they all had their bronte and their curries and their pickle and flasks of chai. And I just thought that was lovely that it still happens. And nobody laughs at it anymore, you know. It's quite, yeah. Yeah. Took me back. I loved it. Loved seeing that. I loved it, and a lot of kind of my, you know, kind of our Western uh, counterparts really enjoyed watching because it, it gave them a sense of our culture, absolutely, and the fact that we could. There were some hard hitting, you know, issues that we we would come through in some of those programs, but also a sense of actually what it was like, kind of growing up. So I, I love the fact that we were able to be more open about it through media, and I guess you saw that kind of whole journey as we were able to really put. Uh, you know, Asians and being proud of being Asian yeah. on the radar. It was and it was great. And it was great because Grinda, the director, you know, she did that one first and then she moved on to Bend It Like Beckham, which was great because yeah. it showed that, you know, an Asian director can do other cultural films, not just about Indian culture. But, you know, you could do different films as well, you know. I mean, they do have an element of what she knows. 
I think it was a real turning point in accepting more Asian people within the film industry, within documentaries, and with te- within television as a whole. I think the BBC really took a chance on Goodness Gracious Me. It was on radio first and then, you know, went on to television. And I, I think they did a brilliant job. They did a brilliant job. And I think, you know, I think more about kind of uh, fashion and music when it came on the radio. So we obviously had Punjabi MC and then you had Jay-Z kind of doing a recut of yes. his music, right? So all of a sudden, Indian and Punjabiness became cool. You had Madonna, obviously, who you've worked with. And she started to wear kind of very Eastern-influenced fashion. So they became, I think, a stage was it probably early 2000s where actually... Oh, I remember the 90s when I would wear English clothes with a huge bindi, you know. I love that. It was the thing to do at the time. And I still sort of, you know, wear my shawls around. Yeah, I think the more people saw it, the more they took it on. I don't believe in this. What's that awful thing? Culturally inappropriate, whatever they call it. I think, no, if you want to wear a sari, wear a sari. There's nothing more my mother used to love than seeing a white person in a sari because she said... You know, with their pale skin, everything looks great. Yeah. You know know what she was like? She loves, she loves that. You know, when I got married, my two best friends, Polish and Italian, both wore turbans, you know, came down the aisle with me. So I do believe in cultural inappropriation. I think it's, it's a great way to show that you're embracing a different culture. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they say what's chicken tea masala is the UK's favorite food, you know, so there's all things like that. It's all things, you know. And now there's the chai people. shops everywhere. You know, forget there's coffee chai shops, shops, chai shops. Chai, yeah, and turmeric lattes. I mean, that's a whole new thing. I'm going to be doing a podcast uh, soon on Ayurveda. And, you know, it's, you know, the first time I had a turmeric latte, you know, well, my mum was like, well, that's a whole thing. I told you to have and you <laughs> wouldn't have it. <laughs> well, I know. And then I had to go to Starbucks to have it for the first time, right? Yeah. So there's lots of things which I find our Eastern influence and are coming into kind of Western society and they're showing us actually what we already should have known. Well, the thing is, we didn't believe our parents. That's We thing, thought it was right? an old wives' tale, you know. Yeah. And so now it's quite funny where you go, and did you know? And they were like, yeah, we do know. We've been doing it for years. And did yeah. you know this? Yeah, we know. That's why we always get you to, used to rub our feet if we were feeling sluggish or not feeling very well, you know, digestion-wise. And I was like, yeah. okay, so you did know. You know, turmeric, they were like, yep, that's why we pickle lots of it so we can have it all year round, you know, to keep your cold away and build your immune system up. It's true. Like, and now so we're all going back to Ayurveda, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you knew all this. They were like, yeah, everybody else believed us apart from our own children. Yeah. Like, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and that's the irony, right? We're all going back to holistic. But, yeah. you know, it wasn't all bad. We, the more, you know, as we get older, like you say, we're embracing our cultural heritage. You've asked your father to kind of film, you know, yeah. a lot about of our heritage, how he grew up, same with kind of my parents. So, obviously, we're really proud, proud of it. So, you know, focusing on the good stuff. And you've got amazing, amazing boys. I love spending time with them. What are the, some of the Indian cultural practices, you know, you want them uh, to carry on kind of the next generation and carry through? Right. Well, what a lot of people don't know is my grandmother, my father's mother, was actually Nepalese and Hindu. So we've actually taught them about both religions, Sikhism and Hinduism, what they stand for, how Sikhism is an extension of Hinduism. And, you know, it's a belief. You know, all these things are beliefs. They're religions, but, you know, it's what you want to believe. So you must never pick on someone, ostracize them or look down upon them just because of what they believe in. It's their belief. You must respect it at all times. And so, you know, that's like just the basics of all religion. Um, and then we do things like Diwali. So we had Diwali where they got given traditionally 
a piece of clothing. So they got clothing on Diwali. We obviously don't leave candles lit at night anymore. I can't believe we used to do that in the 70s. Leave candles lit around the house on Diwali. Yeah. So we tell them the story and we leave the lights on downstairs. You know, so there's modern day versions of everything. You know, Vasaki and of course they do Rukri and they don't have a sister, the brother and sister bond of Rukri. So they do it with their cousin. Um, You know, and they see me, you know, I post, you know, I do it with my brother, but I also have two male cousins I'm very close to. And I make sure I post theirs to them and they see the importance of that. And and they they do enjoy those traditions. They go to the temple, they go to the mandar. So, you know, they you know, it's about respecting both religions that we know about. But we've also talked them about Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, mm. Christianity. Yeah, really important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but just to have that respect for what other people believe in. Mm. And I, what I love about our kind of um, culture is that we have very big kind of networks. We stick together. We've always got each other's back. If one's poorly. You know, you're always, whenever I'm feeling well and well, you're always sending me curries over. And, you know, when we come together as families, there's so much love. We have these huge communities and we are really, I suppose, supported and looked after. You're never really going to be alone in our communities. I think that also goes back to, you know, childhood. We didn't go to the pub. We didn't go to restaurants. We didn't have the money. We didn't get takeaways. We went to each other's houses. Yeah. And we took it in turns to cook. I mean, I remember at one point, you and I, every Saturday we'd go shopping and every Sunday we're at each other's house. And, you yeah. know, and so that just builds this really strong bond. And I have now, you know, really tried, especially in the summer holidays, to say, right, we are going to Auntie Pavine's for three days in Norfolk. We are then going to see, you know, my sister in such and such. Then we're going to see Uncle Sergio, Uncle Lugby. You know, and we go through it all to build those bonds, to teach mm. them what community is as well and also it's quite nice hearing them say to my sons yeah your your mom gosh she had such a strict upbringing your granddad was really strict and they're like granddad no way you know because <laughs> all of a sudden your parents have turned into like the coolest trendiest you know grandparents who just hand over money at the drop of a hat yeah. to their grandchildren <laughs> so they can't believe granddad was ever strict and yeah. so it's quite funny that when they're we're together with extended family. They hear their version, my family's version of events and how it was for them. And that's something you can't get. Yeah, that sense of community. Whilst we said that it could be quite family. stifling. Yeah. Yeah, family, community, you know, it's stifling when we were younger. But actually, as we've grown up, you know, it's like you say, it's one of the things that we want to pass on to our children. I certainly do with my nieces and nephews is that sense of kind of belonging and supporting one another, which, you know, we're all super proud of. So, yes. you know, like you say, there is so much to be proud of. Listen, I could talk to you all day, but what I normally end with is a couple of quick five questions. So being papyologist, I'd really to get your take on, and you can use three words for this. Okay. But if you can, I don't know, it's tough. Um, what's the key to happiness? Freedom of choice. That's it. Love that. Freedom of choice. Freedom to love who you want, do what you want, go where you want work what you want but more importantly the freedom of choice to leave a bad situation whether it's abuse a toxic relationship or something that's you know preying on your mental health Mm. if you can leave if you have that freedom of choice to leave to stay to improve to educate you're happy that's happiness
I love that. And I think a lot to do with that is around courage as well. So one of the things that I'm launching is the core formula, which sets out really is how first and foremost, do we find our courage and be brave to be able to, to be able to say it's okay to have that sense of freedom and not, you know, upset other people. So I absolutely love that. What a great term. Thank you. Uh, And finally, just another quick five questions. Uh If you knew now what you did then, you know, what would you tell your 20 year old self? What would you do differently? Not that you'd need to have done much because you were very, very brave, I have to say. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I didn't feel I was brave enough. I wish I'd been more confident, more pushy. I wish I didn't believe my parents when they said they'd disowned me because I don't think they would have done. I wish I'd taken that job in the factory designing cars that's it yeah but other than that no real I think yeah just be confident be confident there's no such thing as failure it's just you make a mistake you learn from the mistake you move on that's it Mm -hmm. I think you're absolutely right and like you say what is the worst that could happen if you've taken that job you know what was the worst that would happen like you say you would have been forgiven so it's saying in your mind actually if I do this what actually is really going to happen what is the actual worst case scenario and I think we're so built with fear sometimes aren't we that yeah, we, we can't actually see the wood from the trees it's true and, and the problem is you've got the whole society not just your family supporting that fear that's the cycle we've got to break we've got to make our children brave and not scared yes i love that thank you so much listen i could talk to you all day and you are a phenomenal human a phenomenal sister uh, an amazing artist i really do wish you would uh, start selling more of your art because you are absolutely phenomenal <laughs> oh thank um, you and you know you're hiding that from the world i know you only do bits now and again but you're obviously a dedicated mom and doing lots of uh, other great stuff especially around charity work so i just want to say thank you so much uh pleasure for, for joining today and sharing your story uh, like you say so much to be proud of for being you know good brown girls in this environment society so thank you for that and thank you to everyone for listening i wish you all love and light thank you thanks for tuning in lovely listeners any questions or thoughts drop me an email at dowthehappyologist.com and follow me on my social media the happyologist to stay connected for regular empowering insights to supercharge your journey to purpose